I went to Wall Street to get seriously rich, but I didn't get rich. Hollywood Boulevard. I went to Hollywood to be a movie mogul. I didn't become a movie mogul. Washington, D.C. The president and Mrs. Ford have invited us down to Palm Springs. He's been I there. I the entertainment business. Done that. And being hired by a company called Carol Co. Pictures. And that. Was the night before Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. And just about everything else you can imagine. I thought of myself as somebody who was a double agent. He knew a lot of famous My people. experience with Orson Welles. Barbara Streisand. How can you possibly hang out with that low-life Frank Sinatra? And now he's as talking. Of that, I was invited to some fancy dinner. This is the podcast, Who the F*** is Roger Smith? But my real goal was to have an interesting life surrounded by interesting people, and at that, I succeeded beyond my expectations. On this episode, Roger smokes what he calls a giant doobie with friends in Southampton. Who rolled it? House guest Dennis Hopper. And there's more Hollywood accounting with a reference to David Beagleman. He was running Columbia and cashing checks made out to movie stars until Cliff Robertson called him out on it. But we begin with one very big Warner Brothers star and how Roger served him on a silver platter, Mr. Clint Eastwood. Clint, to say he was God at Warner Brothers is underrating what he stood for. He worked cheap, he worked quickly, he was dependable, and he made hits. And he didn't, he didn't require babysitting by the studio. There was never controversy. He'd cast things himself. He found, usually found the scripts himself. And we're in the period of his career where he's almost exclusively directing. He's just he's not almost bringing ex- directors in. He's, he's almost exclusively directing, right. although sometimes starring as well as directing, obviously. And I can date this fairly precisely because it was the time of the famous Beagleman affair and studios were under the gun because we were supposedly shortchanging profit participants in that and screwing around with, with phony accounting, which of course was the case. But Warner- The short story for people listening about the Bagelman thing is that embezzlement was happening and people were getting checks that they didn't know they were supposed to be getting and that's how they were getting the money back to they were, how they were, certain pockets. How they were uh, skimming. Hollywood has always been very creative when it comes to accounting, though. It's always been very creative because, remember, you're asking people to give you money to make something that's an idea. Okay, we're going to build this, we're going to do that. Oh, and I, you know, I think we've got so-and-so to start it. Turns out, well, maybe not, you know. So it's always, it's, it, it attracts people who are great salespeople. And back to Eastwood, this was one of the few guys that gets your buddy Harrison Ford as well, too, I'm sure, something called dollar one, meaning there's no, uh, as soon as this film starts making money, they get money off the top of the gross instead of not that, somebody's not, idea of, of what cost of, is. Of what net is, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, absolutely correct. And Eastwood, he has a very good deal for himself, but it's a great deal for the studio because the costs are low. And uh, But the studio's job was to market the films. And there was a couple of people who, there was one person who literally was assigned to Clint Eastwood. He would be a guy named Joe Hyams, lovely, funny guy. And But uh, in general, on time and on budget. On time, on budget, and, and ready to start the next project the minute the first the one he finished was done. And what was the next project? Well, he had had done a film called Any Which Way You Can, Uh 
which this is his orangutan period. Yeah, but well, this one was any which way but loose. Uh-huh. I think that was the second one. I may be turning them around, but I'm told since in my with my PR hat on, we got to do something to counteract this impression, and we want to make sure that Clint knows how much we revere him. We're going to have a dinner for him three weeks after the movie opens and hand him a check for $6 million, which normally due to standard contractual bullshit, he wouldn't have gotten it for six months. This was money that was going to be coming to him eventually, oh, yeah, but yeah, you were going to hurry it up. We, we were going to show him. rush this No, no screwing around. No, no right. we're, not, we're not going to wait till Italian excise taxes are calculated. Yeah. And now today, we're lo- that's like a $20 million, $25 million check? Yeah. These, yeah. Yeah, okay. So the decision was made to have a fancy dinner at a, upstairs at the bistro, then a, the Hollywood major hangout, the Spago of its day. Right. That's and where shampoo was shot, right? Yes, that's where yes, they have the, the opening scene. The opening scene, right? exactly. Uh, the uh, election night. The party. election coverage, right? And um, I remember it was there were sixty people involved because if there had been forty, I probably wouldn't have been there. But there was sixty, so I was <laughs> I was there. And someone had the bright idea to call up Tiffany's and find out what's the biggest sterling silver tray you've got. They found one that was like four feet by two feet. And we're going to engrave on it the signatures of all the 60 from your friends at Warner Brothers and then give them at the dinner, in addition to $6 million check, which was going to come to him anyway, we give him this lovely tray. You're serving him $6 million on a silver platter. <laughs> on a silver platter, exactly. <laughs> and that had the desired effect that there was all this warm and toasty feelings until about six months later, Clint's accountant found that we had charged the tray to the picture, which meant, of course, that that reduced his profit participations by the the cost of the tray. Do you remember what the tray cost? A couple thousand Six thousand. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And That's a good accountant. If he's combing through the books and finds that. The thing is this. You charge everything you humanly can and then some. Right. Well, yeah. that's why I was saying dollar one is so valuable right. because you don't have to put up with yeah. any of that accounting, Michigas. Right. And so that was the uh, thing, but that wasn't. Did he return the tray? No, I think he kept the tray, but he, he did not uh, he did not appreciate what we'd done. In fact, my next dealing with Clint came when, like all people who are enormously commercially successful, he also would like to have artistic plaudits too. And I had arranged through the friend Mary Lee Bandy, who was the head of the film department at the Museum of Modern Art, to do a special screening and dinner for Clint. Dinner was at 21. And one, I forget which one of his movies was being shown. But, but something a little more highbrow than any which way but loose. Yes, Some, yes, like, yes. Like yeah. Blood Work or one of the, one of the maybe even Heartbreak Ridge, something that was well, the Heartbreak at least Ridge hadn't been done yet, dramatic. But, right, yeah, but yeah. It's, it's one of the more serious, serious films, which there were some, certainly. And we announced there, which was my idea, that we were going to make a gift to the museum of prints of every one of Clint's Warner movies, which at that point was already... 14 or 15 films. I get a call from everybody's so happy. Clint is on. Cheers. Cheers. It's how nice, et cetera. He's, you know, he's now in the museum's collection, permanent collection. But you charged the prints to Clint. No. It's, 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 it's another. <laughs> right. I find out 
when Mary Lee calls me and says, Roger, are you aware that they sent beat up old prints? I said, what? They didn't strike new masters? They did not strike new ones, which they So said, something that played at a drive-in? Yeah, was now it, made, it made, it's made its way through the, all the distribution. It was beat up and, and scratched. I call up the guy who's in charge of physical activities at the studio and said, how could you do this? You want me to get make new prints just to give them away? I said, yes, it's called philanthropy. It's not business. We're doing this. It's also called PR with your most important star, Clint Eastwood. So... They then went and struck. In those days, a print cost about $3,000. So you're talking close to $100,000 to maybe 50000 Right. I forget how many. Now we come to Dennis Hopper. Now, I've told you I've had only kind things to say about movie stars. That's uh, all about to change. That's going to change a little here. Uh, and anyway, I first met Dennis through his what was already then his ex-wife, uh, Brooke, they had had, she'd had two children by her first husband, Michael Thomas, and they were now teenage boys, and then Marin was seven or eight or something like that. And sweet... Was Easy Rider a Warner film way back no. before that? No, no okay. Colum Columbia, unfortunately, uh, but that was, uh, uh, you know, obviously one of the great financial successes for the, the producers who included uh, Brooke's brother, Bill Hayward, a lovely guy. Um, and, and that big producer guy, Bert Schneider. Bert Schneider, right? Yeah, uh, his name escaped me. I'm, well, of course, his name, you his knew name it doesn't escape me because there's a Yiddish word, Ganif. Oh. It applies here. No really? Kidding. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That difficult, difficult guy. That uh, I will just say, even though it wasn't one of your projects, if you have the opportunity, anyone listening to this, to see Easy Rider, you can't believe how well it was shot and how beautiful it looks. It it looks like they had one of Woody Allen's cinematographers or directors of photography because the the, the movie looks amazing. Looks I saw amazing. it recently. Yeah, oh really? I'm and I was surprised yeah, because I thought originally it was kind of a kind of a biker drive-in movie or like a B movie oh, on a double oh, feature. The people it, making it always thought of it as art. It was not seen by that initially and but the reviews they went it was it had an it was the film that set off the new era of Hollywood especially when they discovered that you can make money from these films. That's, of course, uh, forget art. We, it's, it's, you can make a film for $600,000 and it grosses $70 million. Right. That's beautiful. I like, I like that business. <laughs> yeah. no. But it wasn't a Billy Jack kind of movie. It wasn't. No. A, it was like, it, it was a real... It was intended to, to be a serious film and, 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 and showing the zeitgeist of the... Uh, Sitting around a campfire on the road and they're smoking, having a real smoking conversation joints, about yeah, smoking joints, a lot of right. et cetera. And, and motor, but we digress. And motorcycles. And remember Peter Fonda was right. one of the stars. No, no, of course. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I had met Dennis and somehow or other, I was out visiting friends in Southampton and ran into him and invited him to come over for a drink at this uh, beautiful home of some very lovely accomplished but somewhat square people that I was Whose names on. we won't mention. Whose names I will. I'll just say this. He later became uh, the U.S. ambassador to Denmark, so it's not the kind of person that Dennis usually would hang out with. He, if you're Googling right now, we'll pause. Right. All right, go ahead. <laughs> he arrived with his then-girlfriend, who was called Katrine Millenaire, who was a fashionista, Vogue, something like that. And they came and... Dennis immediately brought out and showed, showed to my friends 
the largest doobies I've ever seen and said, would you like to smoke? Well, they never had, but they were intrigued. And so we did. Dennis Hopper has come, come to your house, house and offered you a joint. joint. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, it's good quality stuff. And their biggest concern was that the servants would smell it and that they would discover that they were smoking. I said, look, they're going to think more of you if they do. I promise you. <laughs> Roger. Always with the right spin. Right. So anyway, they afterwards, he started a 45-minute monologue. Uh, he obviously had been smoking a little something before he got there as well as when he got there. And after they left, my friends turned to me and said, well, he's very charming. I just didn't understand a single word he said. <laughs> now, in all fairness, were they a little buzzed at that point too? Or yes, yes, they got yeah, high? Yeah, they got, okay. they, they got, yes. For the like, record. Like almost everybody who smokes for the first time, they think they're not affected by it, but they are. <laughs> and then was a lavish dinner served immediately? That to everyone, to that the, part all the ravenous? Right. But my, um, my friendship with his ex-wife, Brooke, continued in such that we then one summer... 80, 81 maybe, we rented a house in Watermill together. We were not romantically involved, we were just wonderful friends and to this day still are. I am with her. Did Dennis come to visit at all during that? No, but here's the story. He had had virtually nothing to do with his daughter Marin's life till, and this was the period when he had gone off and made last movie in Peru and, and he was just, he, and he was living in Taos and it was, a totally druggy, weird, weird Peyote-fueled nights in the yeah, desert. Yeah, right. right. And Did he acknowledge that this was his child, though? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Oh, yeah, very much so. In fact, she uh, fortunately inherited some of his, not huge, but nice estate because he bought some good art. But anyway, he'd had very little to do with her because he, uh, she was sent to boarding school in Massachusetts, etc. And finally, however, he decides that he wants to come and visit her at her school. Brooke is dubious about this, where this is headed, but she says, well, I can't say no. I mean, and, and he comes in, of course, to 17-year-old girls at a prep school in Massachusetts in 1970-something. He's God. He's, this is five, Did he roll up on a motorcycle? Didn't ask that, but I. But anyway. But we can imagine, obviously, right, right. long hair. He's got right, maybe yeah. a, a leather fringe jacket, jacket on. Yes, and, exactly. Yeah. And look, he looks he, cool. Looks, he, he's the essence of cool. And Marin is just becomes the toast of the campus due to her famous father. We're now there this summer, and Dennis invites Marin to come out and visit him in Taos. Brooke is very dubious about letting this happen for good reason. Uh, I happened to mention this idea to John Calley, who at Warner Brothers, who had worked with Dennis, and he said, Roger, don't let it happen. So I don't know that I have the power to stop it, but I said, I said I could suggest that maybe not, it's not a great idea. This is like a throwback to the 50s when the, the studios were involved in the personal lives of people but this John Calley, who we should say was a big exec there, was running the studio, literally got involved to the extent to tell you, don't let that daughter go see that father. Right. He, first of all, he was, had such amazing perceptions about people, and he was, he was something unheard of in the modern Hollywood era, an intellectual. He, literally, he, was, he read everything. He understood everything. And he formed an amazing relationship with Kubrick, 
because of uh, they they were on the same intellectual plane. Wow! And and every movie, starting with Clockwork Orange, Kubrick made till the end of his life was for Warner because he'd been so horrified by the way he felt that MGM had mishandled 2001. Now they mishandled it into a hundred million worldwide gross back back when that was real money, but he didn't like the way they did it. So, so did you take the daughter to Taos? Were no, you like the I chaperone? Didn't, I, no, but Brooke said, you know, she's going to hate me forever if I forbid her to go. I've got I've to take the chance. Well, she goes. And we learn that Dennis, at one point, in order to assure his drug dealer that he was going to be returning with the money, leaves his daughter there as hostage to the drug dealers. <laughs> In other words, just exactly what your worst fears had been. 17-year-old Marin manages to crawl out a window, hike to a highway, hitchhikes, and gets to a, the pay, a payphone and calls her mother's good friend and my good friend Irving Blum in Los Angeles, who's nearby, relatively nearby. And he arranged for somebody to come and pick her up and so forth. And uh, it ended up, it didn't have an unhappy ending, but boy, it sure could have. What was Dennis's reaction when he went back to the drug dealer and his daughter was missing? Do we know? Uh, We've never heard Dennis's we side care, of this all story. All we care about is the drug dealer's reaction. <laughs> <laughs> Dennis, we don't care about at this point. If he handed them the money, they don't mind missing the daughter. <laughs> anyway, I had suggested my sister, who had ran her own independent Hollywood talent agency, Susan Smith and Associates, I said, you got to sign this guy. And she says, Roger, he's trouble cubed. He's just... Everything about him, it's a nightmare. I said, you know, I said, just meet with him, just meet with him. This is early on in your this, relationship. This with is him. early, this is early on in my relationship with him. This is, um, but around the time of the Taos incident, around then in the, in the 70s. And he wanted to direct and did direct some, oh, some, did, something yeah. that just came to the surface this year, last year, something that had been in, you know, in a vault somewhere that he did. Well, I can't remember the title of that, but I mean, he was. He was a young auteur who just. I oh, he is. Oh, he he look. He was a he was a mad genius. He bought early Andy Warhols. He understood pop art. He was a fantastic photographer. I have several books of his photographs. He, yeah, I know. He, he was a shot multi a lot on set mu stuff, multi yeah. multi talented guy. Just a little bit out there, let's say. My sister said. She met with him and said, "She said Roger." Do I need this in my life? It's going to be nothing but trouble. She said, I told him I'm afraid it's not going to work. She said, he left my office and he never stopped working from that day. He did Apocalypse <laughs> Now. He did Speed. He became a major movie star from somebody who couldn't get a phone call returned. So I said, well, okay, you know, win them all. Now we segue to I'm living in L.A. and I'm running a company called Live Entertainment. I have just managed to acquire the entire library of the then bankrupt Vestron Pictures. And the year now is when? 89, late 89, early uh -huh. 90. This is um, after the murder of Jose Menendez when I became the CEO. And in the list of films which we acquired on the basis that with rare exception, they were going to be straight to video. They, were, they had just enough elements to justify the price we were paying for them to get back their money 
plus hopefully a nice profit in video without a theatrical release. One of them I discover is called Catch Fire, medium budget film, but had Jodie Foster, Dennis uh, Hopper, Dean Stockwell, Joe Pesci, John Turturro, and Fred Ward. And my God, it also had Vincent Price, because you could, you, could, you could get him for $75,000 for anything in those days. And I called up Dennis and I said, this is your movie, right? He said, yeah. He said, you know, Vestron screwed around, et cetera, and, and now I understand it's going straight to video. He directed it? He directed it and started it. And it, we retitled it Backtrack. That's the film. And it, and it actually is a mob thing with it, it, lots, of, lots of action. It's a, it's a credible, better than drive-in movie uh, and better than straight to video. With a pretty decent cast. Well, very decent. I said, Dennis, would you like the chance to re-edit it exactly the way you want? Well, that's like saying, you know, would you, would you, would you like to sleep with Raquel Welch? I mean, okay. <laughs> and he said, oh, absolutely. And we arranged, I'm trying to think a, a decent amount of money so he could go into the editing room and re-edit it. And more important, we agreed to give it a theatrical release because a, it wasn't theatrical for one reason or another, the way you looked at it. You saw it and said, I, I think there's a better movie in here. Yeah, they, they had thought it wasn't. They, well, we were taking the easy way out and just saying, we won't be wrong if we simply make it straight to video. We'll get our money back and no one will, no one will complain because we, we have shareholders. We have to think about these things. And in this case, and I think partly influenced by my personal relationship with Dennis, I wanted him to have the chance to make it because I knew he cared desperately about the films he directed. The films he appeared in was often just picking up a paycheck. And so I was very pleased to be able to give him this chance. And I remember for some reason that we gave him a $700,000 P&A budget, which was not nothing, but not, not a lot. Again, because it's going to go to theaters. It's, it's now going to go to theaters. We need and prints and we need advertising. Yeah. And we're going to, we, right, yeah, we okay. need to give it, give it a shot. And it... it I don't remember what business it did, but in doing that, it enhanced the video sale so that we, it, it, it ended up being an economically wise decision, even if I had partly done it for sentimental reasons. And um, so your relationship with Dennis has kind of a happy ending. Oh yeah, well, we had several meetings after that, usually meals in Italian restaurants, which he liked, and he was a totally changed person. He told me that he had voted for Richard Nixon he told me that he played golf. Dennis Hopper playing golf. I mean, it's just like <laughs> out of the question. But Still uh, smoking dope. Yeah. And he now, he now moved on to wife number three, uh, Daria something or other, uh, an artist, I think. And, we'll tell her you said hi. Okay. <laughs> and one of his complaints to me was that Brooke had gotten in the divorce settlement all the paintings that he had lovingly and very knowingly collected. Wow. I said, I know this was true because one of them was Brooks Andy Warhol tomato soup can painting, which when she was down on her luck and needed money, sold to me for $15,000. I think I've discussed this before. Yeah, we've talked about that in an earlier, right? but did, I, I then wait, waited six or seven years, tripled my money, sold it for 45,000. Next month, Andy dies. And uh, today it's worth three and a half million, but tant pis, as the French say. <laughs> uh, and I'll say this in praise of Brooke Hayward. I took her to dinner when I got the 45000 and she didn't, she was not about money. She just 
She's yeah. probably happy for you. She was happy for, well, she was happy for me, although we didn't realize what a mistake we were making that Andy was going to go from okay. ad admired to the, the single most important artist of the second half of the 20th century. But again, more apropos to this conversation, Dennis Hopper did know that. He knew, he, he, he saw, he knew, he he knew saw what he was saw. a unique and special about Andy Warhol, very much to his credit, and a number of other Ed Ruscha and other sort of California artists, most of whom he had been directed to by our mutual friend Irving Blum, the, his, the original dealer of, the, of those artists that had uh, called, called the Ferris Gallery, which was an important gallery in the history of, of the slow, steady maturation of, of L.A. as an art market center. It's now second only to New York, uh, in America at least. Does that, is that the end of Dennis, though? That's the end of Dennis okay. for me. Well, uh, I, I've kept in touch with his daughter, who started a business called uh, Hayward Hopper, which with her husband, and they sell fancy, expensive bags and 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 accessories and, uh, for seven thousand dollars and things like that, and seemingly a successful business. And the husband, the husband's a lovely guy, John Goldstone. As a footnote, if you had to guess. What would you think all of the artwork that Brooke got in that divorce settlement would be worth in 2022? I almost hate to even try to think about it, but I think there was about 10 paintings and... 50 million, 100 million? It, certainly 30, maybe maybe closer to 50. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I've known a number of women who, when they marry rich men, become art collectors. Why? Because they know that in a divorce settlement, art is treated like furniture. It goes to the wife. So even unless the, unless the husband has made a very special claim that, that this is my interest, this is my segregated property, they are very clever about building up a an, an collection of of art and then uh, having... It's that. almost smarter than jewelry because a good lawyer for a a guy can say he bought her millions of dollars in jewelry right. and whether she gets it or not it's it counts as something the husband has given up right but the art is a little different it's yeah, like they it's, bought it for them for, for themselves it's them. like it's it's treated like furniture if none of his stories were about you, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Who the Fuck is Roger Smith is recorded in an undisclosed bunker somewhere on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. All opinions are Mr. Smith's own, but everything he says happened because he was there. Bill Bergoli is our producer and editor. I'm Bill McCuddy. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. 
the Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electricast production. Electricast. Electricast.